This is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas, and you're listening to episode two, Bioresilience. In today's episode, I explore the idea of health ownership, whether consumer technologies are important for good health, and something called bioresilience, before ending the episode on two bizarre thoughts. In last week's episode, I asked our guest, Dr. Kemke, a question. Who has ownership of our health? Are you responsible? Or is it the community, which includes your family, friends, GP surgery, local hospitals? Or is it the government? Or is it actually some composition of all three? Now, the ideal answer would be some composition of all three. And Dr. Kemke laid out an incredibly articulate answer in last week's episode, which if you haven't heard yet, you should definitely check out. But I want to approach this question from a slightly different direction. And that direction looks something like this. To what extent are we responsible for our own health? And to be even more specific, to what extent is taking responsibility for our own health vital for the overall well-being of both current and future generations of society? But before we explore these questions, it is worth taking a few minutes to elaborate on what health is and isn't. Health is not the opposite of sickness. Though it is impossible for someone to be both healthy and sick, it is possible for someone to be neither healthy nor sick. If you take the population of a country and subtract from it the number of people who are sick, you are not left over with the number of people who are healthy. Between healthy and sick, there is this grey area, this no man's land, where many people find themselves in. They may not have a diagnosis or be on any medications, but you wouldn't call them healthy. Some of these individuals already have problems at the cellular level, which haven't yet manifested at the clinical level, or they may already be on a trajectory to becoming sick. A person who has been infected with coronavirus may not display any symptoms for a few days and be completely unaware that they are sick. Now, imagine the same, but for a chronic illness, where an individual is sick, but it takes a few years before any symptoms begin to emerge. In dementia, harmful changes in the brain have been occurring up to a decade before the person shows any memory problems. Or cancer, where malignant cells have been dividing rapidly for a long time before symptoms can appear. It's becoming increasingly well known that what we mean by healthcare is often actually sick care. There is a distortion in the cause and effect relationship which is best illustrated by this ancient Chinese proverb. So in the olden days, a Chinese doctor would only receive a fee if the patient remained in good health. The payments would actually stop if the person became ill. They thought that treating an ill patient was the same as digging a well after you've died of thirst. In the Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine, an ancient text on health and disease, which is thought to have dated to around 300 BC, the sages did not treat those who were already ill, instead instructing only those who were not yet ill. According to them, a physician was superior if they were able to help someone before the earliest budding of disease, and classified as inferior if they could only help once the disease had already set in. Now, I'm not saying that we should adopt this proverb wholeheartedly, or that I agree with everything in this, but it would be remiss not to pay close attention to some of the lessons here, namely the importance of prevention and distinguishing health from sickness. And now back to the modern world. I will go to the GP when I experience certain symptoms and the GP will assess me, maybe carry out certain investigations, start a treatment or refer to a specialist. Notice how all of this has nothing to do with health and everything to do with sickness. Pharma companies develop drugs for illnesses. Doctors, whether in general practice or hospitals, prescribe these treatments. Ironically, the healthcare system rarely ever encounters healthy individuals. So if all of these are managing our sickness, who is managing our health? Gyms, running clubs, wellness gurus, headspace? So let me put it to you, who is managing your health? Not sickness, but your health. I'd be really curious to hear your answers and would appreciate it if you could leave them either under the Instagram or LinkedIn post. 
And so why am I stressing the importance of prevention so much? Surely very few diseases can actually be prevented and there's little that we can do about them. In 2017, there were just under 60 million deaths reported globally, and 30% of these deaths were due to cardiovascular problems, including hypertension, coronary artery disease such as heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, and other heart diseases. It is largely agreed the majority of these were preventable. Cancer was the second largest, claiming about 17% of deaths. It is also thought that more than 1 in 20 cancers are linked to being overweight or obese. Obesity is responsible for 4.7 million premature deaths each year. To put it in context, this is four times the number that died in road accidents that year. 8% of global deaths are the result of obesity. This is up from 4.5% in 1990. A 2017 report showed that the share of children and adolescents aged between 5 and 19 who are overweight or obese has risen from being 4% in 1975 to around 18% in 2016, and this figure still continues to rise. In the UK, obesity costs the NHS around £5.1 billion a year, with a further estimated cost of about £27 billion to the economy. And then there is diabetes, which is both expensive and deadly. It costs the NHS about £10 billion each year. It's worth remembering that there are different types of diabetes, but type 2 diabetes, which is both preventable and reversible, accounts for 90% of the diabetic cases in the UK. Almost 1 in 20 GP prescriptions were for diabetic treatments. Over 100 amputations are carried out every week on people with diabetes because of complications connected to their condition, and up to 80% of these are preventable. These diseases are preventable, as are the human lives which are lost, as is the social and economic costs which are incurred. Various organizations have identified four important modifiable risk factors to prevent these diseases. They are physical inactivity, unhealthy eating, tobacco use, and the harmful use of alcohol. These were just some statistics to show the negative impact of preventable illnesses through mortality, morbidity, and economic losses. I want to talk about Fred briefly. Now, Fred does very little exercise. He has an erratic sleep pattern, he's a drinker, he smokes occasionally, and he has an affinity for donuts. This gets worse and he becomes pre-diabetic. Certain interventions are put in place, but things don't really improve much, and Fred goes on to become a diabetic. So he's now put on anti-diabetic medication, among others. Fred's close family and friends have tried to tell him to change his lifestyle, but it doesn't seem to have much impact on Fred. Fred has to go see the GP, as well as the diabetes nurse, and they counsel him to try and change his lifestyle, but he isn't very compliant. And things get worse, and now Fred requires insulin as well. Once again, his family and friends are concerned, and they want him to try and make some healthy lifestyle changes. And Fred agrees for a day or two, but then goes back to his usual ways. And now, the complications of diabetes begin to set in. Fred ends up developing peripheral vascular disease, which means he's now at risk of getting an amputation. Things get much worse, and Fred eventually does end up getting an amputation. If we look at this scenario, not through the lens of blame, so rather than asking who was to blame that Fred ended up getting an amputation, but instead reframing it as who is responsible for Fred's amputation, who would that be? Would that be Fred? Would it be his close family members and friends? Would it be the diabetes nurse or the GP? Or even the surgeon who carried out the operation? Or perhaps the government? And I'm very curious to hear about your answer, but I'm even more curious to run a little thought experiment. So if you narrate the story of Fred to your partner or another family member or a friend or someone you live with and ask them, who do they think is responsible? And then if you gave your answer and discussed any agreements or disagreements that you had, I think that would be a pretty interesting discussion. Now that we have established there is much to take ownership of, given these illnesses are preventable, how do we approach the issue of individual ownership? 
It goes without saying that there are certain individuals and groups in society who cannot take care of themselves. They are unable to exert any more ownership over their health for various reasons. Consider a 75-year-old female with advanced dementia who has no contact with her relatives, or a 30-year-old male with a progressively worsening neurodegenerative disease which has hindered his ability to walk, use his limbs, or even swallow food. Unfortunately, these are just some tragic examples, but there are many other countless individuals and groups. However, I suspect this number is outweighed by those of us who can take more responsibility for our health. And as a result, it should be our civic duty to ensure that care services and funding are prioritized to manage those who cannot take any more ownership for their health. John F. Kennedy, in his presidential inauguration speech in 1961, posed the question, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And so if I adjust this slightly and replace country with the NHS, how does that play out? We should ideally commit to a responsibility of not putting undue pressure on the healthcare system. But this should be true on a long-term scale, not just the short term. In other words, we should avoid becoming one of the stats I mentioned earlier and remain free of preventable diseases. Between us, communities or governments, we have the greatest control over ourselves. Voting for a political party of our choice doesn't ensure they come into power. And if they do come into power, they may not implement the policies we want them to. And even if they do, they could lose the next election and those policies could be reversed. Governments of course have an important role to play and they can make key differences. But reliance on top-down approaches incurs a system of fragility and this needs to be balanced with bottom-up solutions where possible. Also, governments don't always know what's best. Whether this has been faulty advice regarding nutrition over the decades as per their own admission or faulty advice regarding masks. These are just two examples and both of these mistakes have impacted many lives. But we can vote with our actions by implementing personal policies like treating the individual as the state and aiming for good health and then from there to scale up to the community level by encouraging our near and dear ones to follow suit. I want to use this as a segue to speak about a concept in psychology called high agency. Now, if you're told that something is too difficult or even impossible to achieve, is your response usually to accept this or figure out ways to make it happen? High agency is about coming up with a way to achieve what you want without waiting for the external environment or conditions to be perfect. These individuals tend to be resilient through difficult circumstances and in some cases, they even change environmental factors towards their favor just to achieve their goal. High agency has been a core trait of most if not all startup founders and it seems to be a recurring theme among the people who will feature in this podcast in the upcoming episodes. This is related to another idea in personality psychology, which is that of internal versus external locus of control. A locus of control is a belief about whether the outcomes of our actions are dependent on what we do or an event outside our personal control. Someone with a strong external locus of control would say that what happens to them is due to luck or fate and they're not really in control of their life. It is all due to external forces in the environment. Someone with a strong internal locus of control would say they are in control of what happens to them and of their actions. Those with an internal locus of control tend to be less prone to depression and anxiety. Sports is one area which is full of multiple examples of individuals with high agency or an internal locus of control. In the Netflix documentary, The Last Dance, Michael Jordan is clearly an individual of exceedingly high agency. Some, including his teammates, may even argue too high of an agency. Some of sport's most defining moments have come when an underdog beats a favorite against near impossible odds, completely defying what was expected of them. They were able to triumph by exercising their high agency. This is perhaps why sports analogies are given for leadership. By taking on these behaviors and mindset when it comes to health, we are able to convince near and dear ones through leading by example. 
Maybe this is true for parents influencing their children too. During Shakespearean times, the word ape referred to both primate and to copy someone, as humans are mimetic creatures and we learn by imitation. This provides an opportunity for parents to confer such habits to their children by placing health on a pedestal and instilling health literacy from an early age. When we choose to build close relationships, whether at work, such as what kind of person would you want to do business with, or even start a company with, or what kind of a partner do you want, we often seek high agency individuals. For the sake of simplicity, we can assume that there are three major cornerstones of health, and they are exercise, nutrition, and sleep. Now, there is an abundance of information out there about which specific health practices that one should adopt, and it can result in choice paralysis. It can be difficult to know what to do or how to achieve certain goals that we have. One useful heuristic is that anti-goals can work just as well as goals. How so? Take exercise. Should I be doing endurance training or weightlifting or high intensity interval training or playing badminton or doing yoga and how many times a week and how long for? Well, what we do know is that doing any of these is better than sitting still and doing nothing. So whichever you choose will be an improvement on the status quo and you should probably pick the one that you enjoy the most or find the easiest so you can build habits from there. Now, when it comes to nutrition, this is perhaps the most contested one out there as there are studies which support opposite conclusions. Should I adopt a vegan diet or should I be vegetarian? Should I go for the paleo diet or a keto diet? Well, without commenting on any of these diets specifically because it falls outside the scope of this episode by eliminating processed foods, refined sugar, excess carbohydrates, seed oils, and sugary drinks, you're already making major improvements. And now there's an increasing amount of evidence to suggest that there are numerous positive benefits of intermittent fasting. And then there's sleep. Although from a scientific perspective, our knowledge of sleep is limited, avoiding caffeinated or sugary drinks six hours before bed and avoiding devices such as smartphones and laptops one hour before bed and eliminating light exposure will all improve sleep quality. Sleep is crucial for recovery and to remove the waste which had accumulated throughout the day. We also know that sleep deprivation has numerous harmful, short and long-term consequences. Sleep shouldn't just be a passive act, but rather an activity that we prepare for. And how does technology fit in with these three cornerstones of health? Well, it can range from being absent to completely involved. So if we take exercise, on one end, we don't need any technology or even any equipment. You know, numerous videos were surfacing online where individuals were improvising using everything from chairs to flower bags as weights during the pandemic. On the other end, the rise of wearables such as Fitbit or the Apple Watch, or even something like Peloton has helped encourage individuals to be more engaged with their health. To give an example, one of my uncles is in a competition with a friend who lives on a different continent and the two are on a mission to outdo one another, often walking as many as 40,000 steps in a day. When it comes to nutrition, the notion of fasting itself is antithetical to consumerism and so technology doesn't necessarily have a role to play. On the other hand, technology has integrated itself in the nutrition space. So for example, there is an app which individuals who are practicing intermittent fasting can use which will tell them what is happening at a physiological level in their body at a certain given hour. So for example, these are the changes in certain hormones. This is the stage when your body enters ketosis and so forth. Another example is a Danish company which analyzes a person's microbiome and offers a personalized recommendation by specifically identifying foods that will be beneficial based on this microbiome or even a glucose monitoring device to monitor blood sugar spikes. An increasing number of non-diabetics are using this. When it comes to sleep, again, one way of looking at it is that this actually requires the removal of technology. 
but this space too has seen the emergence of many new technologies coming into play. Well-known examples are wearables, which can monitor sleep quality through REM sleep, or even a gravity blanket, which is essentially a weighted blanket that reportedly improves sleep quality. Aura rings, which literally is a ring that you put around your finger, has the ability to monitor your pulse, the number of steps you take, your body temperature, and your sleep activity constantly throughout the day and night. Taking this one step even further, there are now smart mattresses or sleep pods as developed by a company called 8sleep. These provide automated temperature control to constantly adjust to your body temperature throughout the night, dual temperature on either half of the mattress. It also tracks sleep duration, REM sleep, your respiratory rate and your heart rate. It also has a smart alarm system which starts by sending gentle chest vibrations followed by temperature adjustment to help you wake up. Now, in some of these cases, technology serves as a medium for accountability, community and competition. For example, many individuals wouldn't commit to completing 40,000 steps to outdo one another if it weren't for the Fitbit which tracks, records and displays this information. The adoption of such technologies are matters of personal preference and dependent on context and by no means mandatory to achieve good health as many tribes, be it the Maasai, Moken or the Chimani can attest to. What some of these tools have provided is a means of self-quantification at our own convenience, which would have been difficult a few years ago due to the high costs. As technologies scale, their price typically falls becoming more affordable. And perhaps for the first time, individuals have more data about themselves in their own hands rather than that data just sitting on the GP's computer. It is also an opportunity to gather data which is dynamic and not static. Biology is a dynamic system and cannot be studied effectively with static data points such as annual heart rate, blood pressure, blood glucose, or lipid level checks. To give one example of this, resting heart rate changes very little with age, but heart rate recovery time following exercise does. There is a greater need for wider accessibility to these dynamic stress tests, which wearables have the potential to provide. For example, the Aura Ring gives a measure of something called heart rate variability. What is heart rate variability? Well, if our heart rate is 60 beats per minute, this doesn't mean that our heart beats exactly once per second. Sometimes it can beat for less. Example, 0.7 seconds between two heartbeats and sometimes for longer, so 1.2 seconds between two heartbeats. This tiny variation, which is usually measured in milliseconds, is known as heart rate variability. Some scenarios can increase this, whilst others cause the intervals to remain more constant. We cannot pick up on heart rate variability, but it is a measure of the heart's ability to respond to different situations. It can react to stress and illness before this shows up in markers such as resting heart rate, and therefore it serves as a very powerful early signal towards preventing illness. It has been used reliably as a predictor of injury and illness in athletes. So for example, if an athlete's heart rate variability starts to reduce, this is a reliable indicator that the athlete would go on to develop either an injury or an illness in two to three days time and therefore they should adjust their training plan accordingly. So maybe taking a day off or doing exercise with low intensity. And so heart rate variability as a marker shows great promise in helping prevent diseases. Building on this, I want to talk about the idea of bioresilience. Bioresilience is the body's capacity to respond to stress. Evolution has selected us for increasing bioresilience, but as we age, our bioresilience becomes weaker. An obvious example that you could relate to is pulling an all-nighter as a university student and then in the morning going to lectures as if nothing happened. However, trying to do the same thing 10, 20, 30 years later, it has consequences. Or even when we're trying to recover from an injury, we're able to do this at a much greater rate when we're young compared to when we're old. Our ability to tolerate environmental changes such as temperature or altitude weakens. 
We also see this in other ways. When we're young, our body is more than capable of normalizing high blood pressure, high blood sugar, and high inflammation back to baseline. This ability also weakens as we age. If our body is fighting a short-term problem, such as an infection, it is necessary to restore the body back to its baseline, i.e. the state it was in before the infection occurred. However, for chronic problems, forcing the body back to the original state only treats the symptoms and not the underlying problem. For example, we know that hypertension or high blood pressure is treated with medications which lower our blood pressure. However, studies have found that in certain patients who are taking these medications long term, it can actually reduce the body's internal capacity to regulate blood pressure and so a tolerance develops to these drugs, which means even higher doses are needed. It has been proposed, counterintuitively, by certain researchers and clinicians that it may be more beneficial to give low intermittent doses of interventions which actually, which actually increase the blood pressure to build bioresilience and lower the baseline blood pressure. This sounds odd, but on second glance, it's very similar to the way exercise creates stress for our heart and muscles to actually improve them later down the line. And healthy athletes have low resting heart rates, but they have built this up by putting their cardiovascular system through many stresses. Nested in all of this is the idea of something called hormesis. Now, hormesis has a complicated definition when you look it up, and it goes something like this. It is the chronic or intermittent exposure to low-grade negative stress that leads to long-term enhanced resilience. This can be loosely translated as what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And to give a specific example, Mithridates, who was the king of Pontus, what is now modern-day Turkey, he was so afraid of being poisoned that he regularly took small doses aiming to build immunity over the long term. This has been seen in many pop culture references in books and films such as The Princess Bride and The Count of Monte Cristo. The idea behind both hormesis and bioresilience is that we should embrace short-term and intermittent stresses to actually counteract chronic diseases. What does all of this look like at the practical level? Proponents of bioresilience say that we should gradually adopt lifestyle interventions which stretch our dynamic capacities by choosing variations over fixed routines. So for example, intense training combined with days where we meditate, exposure to a range of temperatures and altitude, periods of fasting coupled with a diet based on variation. I want to end the podcast on two slightly esoteric thoughts. The first one, given the amount of useful information that is carried in stools, why aren't toilets designed more like laboratories where you could flush the content and receive a report which gives information about any parasitic activity, about gut bacterial balance, inflammatory markers, and what changes we need to make in our diet to improve our health. And the second and final thought. For too long now, aging has been thought of as an inevitability rather than a disease. It is possible to slow down aging and even reverse it. This is already happening as we speak. Scientists and biotechnologists leading the anti-aging effort, who until a few years ago were dismissed as either mad or quacks, have made remarkable progress in this field. In the coming years, the world will be surprised to hear of the advancements that have been made in longevity. We will cover this in more depth in some future episodes. For now, one way to look at it is that aging is a side effect of being alive. The ambition and imagination of these scientists reminds me of a quote from the movie Interstellar. Now we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. These scientists and researchers and clinicians are reminding us that it is still possible to do the former. This was episode two of the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I hope you'll join me again next time. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you could leave any comments on the Instagram page, that'd be great. Till next time.